We'll be in Luke chapter 8 this morning. You might turn with me in your New Testaments there to that passage. Luke chapter 8. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning, to be able to worship together and to think about eternal things together this morning. In John chapter 8, you remember Jesus speaking to some Jews who, in the previous verse of a very familiar passage, verses 31 and 32, in verse 30, it tells us that there were some who believed in him, and then Jesus told them about true discipleship. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, or truly, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's interesting that 10 chapters later, when Jesus would attest to the fact that he is a king, but a king who rules in the spiritual place and and the spiritual land of truth, that Pilate would ask the cynical question, what is truth? And representing in that thought, a ageless thought, one that certainly we are disposed to in this country of relativism. We live in a time where truth is doubted where there is the lack of agreement that there is even an objective truth that we can reach an understanding of and agree to. So that puts us in a a tricky situation, not just as people of the truth, as Christians who are trying to reach out to others, but ourselves having to deal with that kind of influence. In Ephesians 5 and verse 17, Paul would say, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And there is a question, even among saints, sadly, as to whether we can actually understand all the truth. Can we understand it alike is, I think, a silly question that has been seriously asked by some. We know that if we understand anything mutually, we understand it alike. If we understand differently, then we must not actually understand it, or at least one of us is off. And so for that reason, fundamental studies like the parable of the sower and a consideration of the nature of the gospel and the responsibilities of hearers is of paramount importance. And I want us, before going into this study of Luke chapter 8, to be encouraged, not just as those who may not have obeyed the gospel and are searching for truth and considering the way to salvation, but for those of us who are members of the one church, who have accepted the truth and applied it, that we would consider ourselves in this study because this is not simply a call by Jesus for those who have not obeyed the truth yet to hear it and consider it seriously and to count the cost and to follow it, but also to those who are practicing disciples. And I think we see that in this parable. We need to take heed how we hear. That's what it boils down to there in Luke 8 and verse 18. This is what Jesus would say after he had called the people in verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He would say, therefore, take heed how you hear. And so it's obviously important that we hear that the gospel would be preached to us, that we would crack open our New Testaments and consider the things of God that we're to observe even to this day. Our souls depend upon hearing the truth, but our souls depend even more so on how we hear the truth. The truth is important. The truth is powerful. The truth is perfect as it is a product of a perfect mind, the mind of God. 
but it will not save the hearer who has not taken heed how he hears. And we see that demonstrated very vividly in the text of Luke chapter 8. Beginning in verse 4 of Luke chapter 8, Jesus speaks a parable that we're very familiar with, the parable of the sower. And we'll consider it to some extent this morning. But I want us to see the function of it, particularly in the context in which it is spoken. And you notice that beginning in verse 9. And we'll look at the parable like I mentioned briefly. But notice in verse 9, after he speaks that parable that we're familiar with, where a sower sows seed on various soils, and, and some it didn't do anything, some it did some, some good for just a little bit and then was, was taken away, and then on one soil it yielded a bunch of fruit. In verse 9, his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? And he explained, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables. He explains that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. He's quoting there from Isaiah, the sixth chapter, when Isaiah is commissioned by God to go to a hard-headed people in Israel. And so after speaking the parable of the sower, his disciples ask an, an important probing question, and their question is, what does the parable mean? But it's interesting, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10, they asked a different question, and I, I don't think there's a contradiction here. You've got Matthew, by inspiration of the Spirit, recording one part of their question, and Luke recording another part of their question. Luke, they asked, what does the parable mean? We, we hear this parable, what does it mean? But in Matthew 13 and in verse 10, they said, why do you speak to them in parables? So what does this mean versus... Why are you using this kind of method in your teaching? And so as we harmonize the gospel, I think that there is a twofold question and therefore would be a twofold answer and explanation. They are asking what it meant and why he's teaching in this way. And he would tell them what it meant. He would explain the parable beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 8. He did the same thing in Matthew's account. But also, I think he is at least implicitly giving an explanation, also explicitly by means of quoting Isaiah 6, why he's speaking in parables. And we see it in verse 10. In Luke's gospel, he says, to you it has been given to know, and we'll look at that in a moment, but to the rest it is given in parables that, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Again, quoting from Isaiah the sixth chapter. There's also a difference here in the language recorded by Luke and Matthew, even in this verse. There in Luke's account, it says, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That's the Greek word, he not, and it means in order that. And so here is something Jesus is doing to bring about an effect in order that. I'm, I'm preaching in parables in order that seeing they may not see and hearing that they may not understand. And that may be jarring to us, but Jesus is using parables so that they will be incapable of seeing and understanding. But I think Matthew's gospel gives us a little better understanding of that because in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 13 and in verse 13, he says, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And he gives a little bit lengthier quote of that. But it's the same thing we see in Luke's account. 
that's the Greek word hati, which is concerning that. It's, it's what we know the cause to mean. And so Luke is saying Jesus is preaching in this way to cause something to happen. And Matthew's saying Jesus is preaching in this way because something has already happened. And so as the, the question was twofold, what does the parable mean? And why do you speak in these parables? The answer to the question, why do you speak in this way is twofold. They don't want to see and they don't want to hear. So I'm speaking in parables so that they are incapable of doing so. You're not going to understand by accident is what Jesus is saying. And so he's developed a way of teaching in eternity where he's going to give them the truth, but they will only be able to understand it if they want to understand it. And that's the key principle. Take heed how you hear And that's where this question of verse 10 comes into play. When he says to you, it has been given to know. What does he mean by that? To you, it has been given to know. Well, and it's to notice that's in a response to the disciples asking this question. What does the parable mean in verse nine? And we might be disposed to conclude that it was just the chosen 12 that were going to be able to understand this. They were the initiated. They were the special ones. But as we've studied Acts chapter or Acts, but also especially Luke recently, we came to the understanding that when he speaks of disciples, he doesn't always just mean the 12. There were others that were following him. And Mark's gospel really shows that those around him and the 12 is who asked this question. And so it's not just that there's an initiated few, but anyone who wants to know. And we'll see that as it's illustrated in the parable. And so he spoke a parable about sowing seed on different and various soils. But then he gives the explanation in verse 11, and he rehashes some of the things that he mentioned in detail in the actual parable. So we will dispense with reading verses four through eight. But he'd say in verse 11, answering their question, what does this parable mean? Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. Now the ones who fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. I want to key in on verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And you've got some hearts, and this is what the soil represent, who are so hardened that they don't even give the truth a chance. It's immediately snatched away. Some they have a kind of shallow faith. And so they're only willing to go so far. And it's so shallow that when hard times come, it fades away. And so they believe, but only for a while. You've got the thorns who are too distracted by the things and cares of this life. And so it chokes out the word. But here's the good ground. And I think that's where we pair it up with verse 10. To you, it has been given to know. Well, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Well, you're one of these soils. And the ones to whom it has been given to know identify with the good soil, he says, that represents those who hear the word with a noble and good heart. This is similar to what we recently studied in Acts 17. The Bereans were more fair minded or noble minded or noble than those in Thessalonica. 
It's a different word, but a same connotation. It it's, means properly beautiful, Strong says, chiefly good and valuable and virtuous. The, the word used in Acts 17.11 means well-born, of high rank, and it's used figuratively. And so figuratively, they've got a beautiful heart. Figuratively, they are noble. And in what way? New American Standard Bible, I think, gets it. They have an honest and good heart. So the people who are intellectually honest, they're, they're honest with the truth. They're honest with themselves. When they see the truth, they don't try to trick themselves into believing something else, believing a lie like 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us and warns us about that some will do. But they're willing to accept it. They're honest people. And to honest people, it has been given to know the truth. They want to know the truth. And God says that they will be able to know the truth. So to them, it has been given. Jesus would say in Matthew 7, that if you seek, you will find. If you ask, it will be given. If you knock, it will be open to you. That's the idea here. And the parable in context serves as that illustration. I'm going to teach in such a way that only the people who actually want the truth are going to receive the truth because they represent the good soil or the good soil represents them. So notice the whole context and the whole, you know, you would think that Jesus is teaching in parables because he doesn't want everyone to be saved. That's not true. He wants everyone to be saved. But based on the creation of mankind with free will, He's got to give them a choice. They're going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to count the cost and determine whether they actually want to follow the truth. And so I'm going to preach it in such a way that will weed out the good from the bad, that will show the honest from the dishonest. He's wanting us to know, but only those who want to know are going to know. There's plenty who try to trick others that they actually want to know. They don't really want to know. They're in it for other reasons. So notice in verse eight, he had said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then in verse 18, take heed how you hear. And couched in the middle of that is this explanation by Jesus that that's what he's trying to do. He's not preaching just to make things more difficult. He's not preaching to hide the truth, but to reveal the truth. And he uses some similar language that we're familiar with in other places of the New Testament in the gospel for that matter but he's using it specifically in this context to determine that he is wanting to reveal, not conceal. If it's concealed, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, our gospel is veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded. And so it's veiled because of, of your hearing. So notice in verse 16, no one when he has lit a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. I'm not preaching, Jesus is saying, to conceal truth any more than someone who lights a lamp lights a lamp to just hide the light it puts out. The whole purpose of Jesus's ministry is to reveal, not conceal. Notice verse 17. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. He used the same kind of language in chapter 12 to warn of hypocrisy. Everything's going to come out at one point or another. You'll be shown to be a hypocrite. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that there were secrets kept hidden from the beginning of the world that were intended to be revealed at the right time. And he's saying now's the right time. I'm revealing 
the will of God from eternity and I'm revealing it so that you can know it and you can follow it. That's why in verse 18 he says, therefore take heed how you hear. I'm wanting to reveal and I'm revealing it in a way that anyone can understand, but only the people who actually want to understand will understand. And so it all boils down to our responsibility. That's the whole focus of chapter eight in this section. It's our responsibility. There are people who want to place the blame on God that it's just too difficult to understand. Why didn't God make it more clear in this particular topic or text? Why why is he making it so hard? But it all boils down to whether we are fulfilling our responsibility. God is not the one who has caused problem. So he says, take heed how you hear. Do you want to be the ones to whom it is given? Do you want to be the ones with an honest and good heart? Do you want to be the ones who benefit from the saving nature of this message? Are you hearing so that it can save you? That's why I said this is not just for those who have not obeyed the gospel. That certainly is. But this is something for us as well, because you noticed that there were some who fell among soil where it sprouted and brought forth fruit and then it stopped. And they faded away. But in verse 15, the one that fell on the good ground keeps the word and bears fruit with patience or endurance. And so this is for us as, as well. Are we taking heed how we hear The responsibility is placed upon us. And he explains the consequences of not taking heed how you hear. He explains for whoever has to him more will be given. And whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. You know, the Jews had, didn't they? The Jews had the law of Moses. In Romans chapter 3, it explains that they had a great advantage over the Gentiles. Chiefly because to them was committed the oracles of God. You think they knew about God more than any other people in the world? Absolutely. But as soon as they heard with a biased ear and determined that they did not want the gospel that this man Jesus was preaching, even what they seemed to have was taken away from them. What benefit does all the Old Testament have if you've rejected the one it's pointed to. But brethren, we could say the same about ourselves. And so you you have the truth. I've seen the one true church of the New Testament. I've seen the kingdom established. I've seen the entry and I have submitted to it and gained entrance. Jesus said, I'm the door. John 10, I've entered by the door. I put on Christ in baptism and, and I've followed to this point, but now I'm hearing something that I've got to give up or something I've got to change. I've, I've learned that I've been mistaken about this certain topic or this doctrine or this moral principle. And now I've got to change it, but I don't want to change it. And, and we may convince ourselves that we're actually okay. And, and we've hardened our hearts. We've 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 calloused our conscience and we've not taken heed how we hear. But now even what we think we have is being taken away from among us. What good is everything else if you're not going to take the whole truth? 
So there's a lot at stake here. And I want to tell you, each time a person rejects the truth, no matter how far they've come in the truth, it chips away at all truth that they have previously accepted because it all ties in together. It's all logical. You can't just pick and choose. And so it's imperative that we hear the text, take heed how you hear. And that's an every single day thing. It's an every single class thing. It's an every single sermon thing. It's an every single study thing. It's an every single time I open up my Bible. I'm not just reading flippantly to check a box off of a list of my daily Bible reading, but I am reading with the ear and eye of being willing to take the conviction of truth and conviction of sin, perhaps, to change anything and everything that I need to change. Because if that's not my predisposition going into a study, an attitude I've already decided upon before reaching a study, then I will not be able to understand those more difficult things. So take heed how you hear. So let's think about this practically for the time we have left. What this parable and and then the parable as an illustration point of why he teaches the way that he does and overall the comprehensive nature of truth that it's perfect itself, but it only appeals to those who want the truth. So you've got to take heed how you hear. What does that look like as we approach truth? Well, I want to suggest to you that first it asks us the question or we need to ask ourselves the question if we're taking heed how we hear. Do I have an urgency about knowing the truth and submitting to it? Is it urgent to me? You know, the truth is about salvation. He said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And, and they kind of recoiled at that. We, we're Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And he would double down on this. He'd say, if you've committed sin, you're a slave of sin. And that's what the truth is all about. It sets you free from sin. Isn't that an urgent matter? This is not tradition. This is not about the way our families do things. This is not about our religious traditions and leanings and connections. This is about our eternal destination and where we will be. Isn't that urgent? If you don't study eternal matters with a sense of urgency and you're just content to go along until the next study comes along, and, and you're not going to search the scripture in the meantime. You're not going to meditate on it. You're not going to pray about it. You're not going to think about it. You're not willing to immediately obey the truth. When you see that it's truth, then, then what are we doing? And so the first question, I think, if I'm taking heed how I hear, is, that th- is this important to me? Is it urgent to me? And so you notice an interesting time in Acts 24. We haven't got to this yet in our studies, but... I think we're all familiar with it. When Paul is in uh, custody, and after some days, it says in Acts 24 and verse 24, Felix, the governor, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, it tells us what Paul spoke about in general. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Those are hard things to hear, especially for a man who Josephus records in history is 
in a relationship, a marriage with a woman who is actually one who belongs to another man. They're in an adulterous relationship. And Paul is talking about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And this is Felix's response. Go away for now. When I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. And while he would continue to discuss things with Paul in verse 26, you want to know how I know the, the more convenient time never come? He says that in verse 26, Luke records that he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. And so at first he may have had a true interest in the truth. But then Paul convicts of sin and demonstrates that we will be judged for our sins and the things we're doing in the flesh. And he says it's not convenient now. No wonder it wouldn't be convenient. I have no doubt that he loved his wife, but she did not belong to him. The marriage bond was not created by God because they were bound to other people. And so certainly the cost was great, but was this urgent to him about eternity? Evidently not. He says, I'll put it off. We can't put it off. Do we have an urgency about knowing the truth and submitting to it? Or do I intend to put forth the necessary effort to ascertain the truth? Or am I only desiring truth if it comes easy? You know, in Luke chapter 8 and in verse 9, the disciples said, what does this parable mean? He says to you, it has been given to know, but they didn't know, did they? And so it's not like they immediately understood it, immediately clicked with them. But some people stop there. It, it doesn't immediately resonate with me. It's a little difficult. I can't understand this, this topic or this scripture or this subject. And so I'm just not even going to worry about it. But the disciples asked, didn't they? And I think that's the key, key difference. If you don't understand something immediately, it doesn't mean it hasn't been given to you to know. It doesn't mean that God's just leaving you out of the equation, that he doesn't care about you. And he's put it in a way where Jeremiah can never understand this. That's not the point. Perhaps it's a test. He only wants those who really want him. We recently studied in John 6. No one can come to Jesus except such as the father draws. And so he only wants those who really want him. And, and how better to test that than to put truth in such a way that is obtainable, that you can ascertain, that you can understand, but that takes some work, takes some effort on our part. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, study or be diligent to show yourself an approved worker of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're going to have to be diligent. You're going to have to, to work. You're going to have to put forth effort. And it's interesting to me. In the previous two chapters of Luke chapter 6, when Jesus speaks the parable or the rather sermon on the plain or the sermon on the mount as Matthew chapter 5 through 7 records it. And he gets to the end of that sermon and we're familiar with the, the text in Matthew where there were some who called him Lord, Lord, but they don't do the things which he says. And, and then he speaks about uh, building your, your house on the rock or on the sand. There's something that he adds in Luke. And he says in verse 47 of Luke 6, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. The rock is the truth of Christ. But it takes hard work digging deep. 
Do I intend to put forth that effort? Am I going to study it out like the Brians in Acts 17? Am I going to search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so? Am I willing to put forth the effort to come to the truth and be saved? We had just studied in Acts 17 about Paul preaching in Athens. And he explained something about that unknown God to them. He explained how God made all mankind from one blood. One man came every nation of the earth. And, and he rules in the kingdoms of men so that men are able by God's providence and control to search for the truth and come true the truth if that's really what they want. And, and part of that includes the start for someone like pagans and Gentiles who didn't have the codified law of Moses to come to a knowledge of God's very existence because he's not far from each one of us. In Acts 17, he explained, for in him we live and move on, have our being. And he explained if we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him and find him. Are you groping? Are you seeking? Are you searching? Are you working hard to get to that point? And so it manifests that God is near to us, but just far enough away where we have to work to find him, that he exists and then what his word dictates. Are you willing to put forth the effort? And on top of that, do I possess the predisposition to accept the truth regardless of its content? We studied in Acts 17 in verse 11 recently, as I mentioned, the Bereans who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And it explains why in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. We talked a little bit about that word readiness. It's the Greek word prothumia. Pro is a forwardness and thumo is mind. And so when Paul and Silas preached to them, they had a forwardness of mind. And I think readiness is a good translation. They were ready. They didn't know what they were ready for. Not in detail. They were ready for the truth. These men claim to have the truth. I'm ready to hear it because I know I have the truth in the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm going to search them. I'm going to vet what you're saying. I'm going to make sure what you're saying fits the inspired and perfect scriptures. But I'm ready for the truth. That's the point. I may not know what it is that's going to be said to me, but I'm ready if it's true. James 1.21 says that we lay aside sin and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. It's that temper of spirit, meekness, proudness, in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. And so I'm not going to fight against God and truth is from God. So if you show me that I've got to change and I verify to be the truth, I am ready to accept it. Do I intend to obey the truth? That's a good litmus test. And, and only you can know and God can know but why are you here this morning? It, do you really intend to obey? In Luke 6 and verse 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Why do, you, why do you call me one with authority and come to listen to what I'm preaching if you have never intended to actually obey what I'm preaching? And I want to tell you something. 
If you're not willing to obey, if you're not intending to obey, this is some sort of social or intellectual exercise for you and and obedience is not really that important to you, you won't be able to understand the truth. In John chapter 7 and verse 17, Jesus explained, if anyone wills to do his, that is the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, his doctrine, Jesus' doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So the key to understanding and following Jesus is do you want to obey God? Because Jesus is the only way to the Father. If you don't intend to obey the truth, you won't be able to understand the truth. Do I truly wish to follow God? And this comes into this as well. Or do I have ulterior motives in my heart? There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel, the 14th chapter, where you've got the men of Judah being addressed. It says in Ezekiel 14, Some of the elders of Israel came to me and set before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? So he gives Ezekiel instruction. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. And and that's why looking in the mirror is of paramount importance. Do I really want the truth or are there ulterior motives? I want to be directed in the way I want to go. There's a reason why men and women claim to be of faith, claim to be spiritual, claim to be followers of Jesus and are obviously walking in contradiction to the truth, yet maintain a confidence of standing with God. And it's because God has given them over to their desires. That's scary. Where we can become so hardened to the extent that we're not worried about our soul and in fact we're confident about our fellowship with God when we don't actually have fellowship with God because we had ulterior motives and God gave us over to them. I will answer them according to their idols. It's a dangerous game to play. Do I want the truth or am I seeking validation for settled beliefs? And this is an extension of that point before. Remember, When Jesus spoke the parable of the Good Samaritan, it came because of a question of a lawyer that said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so he said, what's written in the law? And he mentioned loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But notice in verse 28, after Jesus had answered right, said you had answered rightly, do this and you'll live. He asked, who is my neighbor? But Luke records wanting to justify himself. He said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so I don't actually want the truth. I'm I'm seeking to be validated in my own understanding of truth, which is not actually an understanding of truth. Who's my neighbor then? Certainly he asks with ulterior motives in his heart. And only two more questions. Do I have any reservations before hearing the truth, which I have predetermined will take precedence? Again, all these three really go together that we've recently looked at. You remember in Matthew 19, it discusses a rich young ruler. And I want to tell you, that this man was spiritually minded. In verse 20, after he had asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, keep the commandments. And Jesus told him which ones. And he's talking about 
the summation of the law ultimately the young man said all these things i've kept from my youth and so a person like that does not do it just flippantly this is a spiritually minded man this is a devoted jew but then when jesus said after he asked what do i lack he said if you want to be perfect go sell what you have and give to the poor when the man heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so he had this one thing, a reservation in his heart. I will do everything to follow God. I will do everything to get to heaven except give up my riches. And he may not have known that he had that in his mind. But that's the way he was living, wasn't it? And so it kept him from seeing the truth. And lastly, do I intend to follow truth wherever it may take me, even through trial and tribulation? You remember what Jesus said in Mark 8? In verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what will the profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Are you willing to pay the price? Have you counted the cost? Anyone who follows the truth where it takes them will be led into trial and tribulation. They will see some physical and temporal consequences of a negative nature for doing something which is purely positive. But it's worth it, or is it? And that's the question. Because while it might not be the kind of physical persecution in this particular moment that the disciples faced in the first century, it may come to that, but this may even be talking about relationships with family. Maybe talking about a, a job that you have to leave if following Christ would lead to that. Anything, are you willing to go where the truth takes you, as difficult as the road may be? Because if, if you can't answer with a hearty and honest yes to that question, you won't be able to see the truth. God's going to allow you to convince yourself that something else is true, but your soul will be the cost. We've got to ask these questions to ourselves every single day. We've got to pray about it. And as Jesus said, we need to take heed how we hear. Before we dismiss to our classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.